What is the condition of your heart? I would encourage you to look at the parable of the talents here for reference in Matthew 25, but the question is, are you relying upon the grace of God to accomplish his purposes, or are you relying upon the strength of your own desire and will to accomplish your purposes, even if it's in the name of Christ? Are you serving and working out of devotion to God? Or out of devotion to self. Christian counselor Paul David Tripp states, This is what God's grace does. It rescues us from our spiritual blindness. It releases us from our bondage to our rationalism and materialism. Grace gives us the faith to be utterly assured of what we cannot see. It frees us from refusing to believe in anything we cannot experience with our physical senses. But grace does more than this. It connects us to the invisible one in an eternal love relationship that fills us with joy we have never known before and gives us rest of heart that we would have thought impossible before. And that grace is still rescuing us because we still tend to forget what is important, real, and true. We still tend to look to the physical world for our comfort. We still fail to remember in given moments that we really do have a Heavenly Father. Grace has done a wonderful thing for us and continues to do more and more. Hence Jesus' warning to the church is to not forget their first love. We are not to forget our first love. To not forget the grace of God in Christ Jesus through whom we have been saved and commissioned to love others as Christ so loves us. Now we come to the church in Smyrna, which is in a slightly different predicament than the church in Ephesus. They don't feel strong, like their brothers and sisters in the Ephesian church. They feel weak and poor because they are hemmed in by society. They are embattled on every side. And they feel like they're just hanging on by a thread. And they're wondering what's going to become of them. Jesus reminds them that they are stronger than they think. And he tells them why. If Jesus asked you individually and this church corporately, what is the condition of your life? How would you respond? Perhaps if you were talking to a like-minded believer and they asked you, well, what's the condition of your church? What's the condition of your life? Maybe you'd have a, a thorough answer for them. But if Jesus Christ were standing here, the one who sees into our very soul, the one whom we can't hide anything from, if he were standing here and he asked you, what is the condition of your life personally and us as a church corporately, how would you respond to him? I remember an idiom I would hear when I was a young man. My dad would quote it to me quite often. 
He would say, early to bed and early to rise makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Early to bed and early to rise would make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. It was, it was a, a, a maxim which promotes the idea of being industrious, being a hard worker, of, of hitting the day head on and accomplishing something. And it, it was, it was, it's an axiom that's kind of the basis for the issue of how do you live a rich and, and fulfilling life? And this is what I was taught. And, and, and I understand the, the principle behind it is that make hay while the sun shines, right? But we live in a world right now where electricity has been around for a long time, <laughs> at least since I've been alive. So I know it's been at least 57 years. And with electricity, you can have lights on and you can have machinery that's on and, and, and corporations and companies, factories work 24-7. They don't even take a a, a day off for Sunday. They just continue to produce, continue to work. Does that make them healthy, wealthy, and wise? Burning the daylight as well as the midnight oil? Not even taking time off for, for the Sabbath? Who determines and defines what it means to be healthy or rich or wise in this life? Thus, we're back to listening to the counsel of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who is not only the great physician, but also the sovereign Lord over all history, over all humanity, who supremely knows our condition and brings to us uh, our second letter that the risen Christ now dictates to John to give to the church at Smyrna. It's Revelation chapter 2, Verses 8 through 11. Hear God's word. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray. Father, instruct our hearts and minds through your word. Speak through me as your servant. Bless and encourage us. Feed us with this manna from heaven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, what is the condition of the life of our church. Are we healthy? Are we wealthy? I don't simply mean financially, but are we rich towards God? Are we wise? What is our condition in the eyes of God? Consider the life of this church here in Smyrna. In the eyes of the world, this church in Smyrna was despised. 
held in low esteem by society, especially the Jews in the synagogue who ostracized them. The exclusion from society brought about poverty in the church as they were seen as outsiders. They also physically suffered for the name of Christ Jesus as many, or at least some, were martyred for their faith in him. In John 15, verse 20, though, Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah foretells the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. And instead of receiving him with honor and praise, you would think that they would do that. He says that he was, would be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And instead of receiving him with open arms, they rejected him. Jesus didn't seek wealth material wealth or privilege in this world. He even came to a point where he was fasting out in the wilderness. This is Matthew 4. He was fasting out in the wilderness for 40 days, devoting himself to his heavenly Father, in communion with his heavenly Father. And Satan comes to tempt him, and he says, if you're the Son of God, I know you're hungry. Why fast? Why starve yourself? Why go without If you are the Son of God, why do this? You have the power to tell those stones to become bread. And once you do it, you can have something to eat. How did Jesus respond? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. I will obey every word that comes from the mouth of my heavenly Father. I will not heed your words. Jesus is saying that life does not come from the world alone, but life does come from God's mouth alone. If it were not for God speaking life into this world, this world would be nothing more than a rock with water on it. And I would not even be speaking to you right now because you or I would not exist. Life comes from the mouth of God. When we think about being rich towards God, we're we're talking about being rich in His Spirit. That's what a healthy church is. It's rich in spirit. It's rich in the life of God, in the life of Christ. Are we rich in the life of God? of Christ in our congregation. Who again determines and defines what it means to be healthy or rich or wise in life? Is it not Christ Jesus? Can we wrap our minds around this as our society bombards us daily with what they think it means to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? Look at verse 8 regarding how Jesus begins his letter to this church in Smyrna. 
He says to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Jesus referring to himself as the first and last is referring to his eternality. He's referring to his divinity. As theologian G.K. Beale stated, the expression first and last refers to God's sovereignty over history especially in fulfillment of prophecy and in bringing world affairs to a climax in salvation and judgment. God is transcendent over time and governs the way history proceeds because he is in control of its inception and conclusion, first and last. I told you before, this world has an inception. It has a a beginning, a birth date. And it also has a conclusion, an ending date. It is not going to last forever in its current estate. It is going to be made brand new. And that kingdom, that world, will remain forever. We need to understand this. And what do you need to hear as a follower of Christ Jesus when you feel like you are helpless against the governing world forces imposing their will on you? What do you need to hear when you are overwhelmed by your circumstances, when you are overwhelmed by those who stand against you, you need to hear that Jesus Christ is on the throne, that he is still sovereign, that he is still governing, and that things are all working out for his people for their good. You need to know that Jesus is sovereign over human history, governing the way it proceeds. Is this not how the Lord Jesus comforted John who fell at his feet, though dead, when he stood in the presence of the risen Lord? In Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I am the living one. I am not the one who died and remains in the grave. I am alive. I live continuously, even though he entered into time and space in his incarnation, taking upon himself human flesh, and was crucified, died, and was buried. For three days he was in the tomb. Then Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Even though Jesus experienced death in his ministry here on earth, he is alive forevermore. How brief of a moment was the eternal Son of God separated from his heavenly Father, and yet what an incredibly awesome moment where sin and death were conquered when Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. So we need to understand that when Jesus went to the cross, that was by God's design. God knew it was coming, and he allowed it. Jesus tells Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. You would not be able to follow through with this crucifixion unless it was granted to you from above by my heavenly Father. In John 12, Jesus predicts his crucifixion and the Lord says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. 
was to offer my holy life as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin so that you might have the life that I have. Jesus knew his mission. He came to this world to break the power that sin, death, and the devil held over us. So Jesus speaks to the persecuted church who lives in constant threat of danger and says, Did sin overtake me as I took upon myself your sin? No, it did not. Did death win as they nailed me to the cross and buried me in the tomb? No, it did not. I am resurrected from the grave and alive forevermore. Will the evil one who is persecuting you now prevail over you? No, he will not because I have overcome. And if you are in me, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are covered by my righteousness. You are covered by my power. And he will not prevail. You will prevail over him. Jesus said in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. He tells the the church in Smyrna, be faithful to me even to the point of physical death and I will give you the crown of life. What is that? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Even though you die, yet will you live. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, you look at Jesus' life. Even though he died, yet he lived. He was resurrected. He rose from the grave. And he is alive forevermore. And we look at that, it's such a mystery on one hand. But it's so glorious on the other. But this is the promise to us. When when Jesus is speaking to Mary, it's her brother Lazarus who had perished, who had died. He'd been in the grave for four days. And she tells him, I know that you could, could have healed him if you were present with him. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. What does Jesus do? And this is just a sign. This isn't permanent for Lazarus. Jesus' miracles in this life were signs to demonstrate the greater glory of his salvation. And Jesus calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. The one who was dead lives. That was a sign to what Jesus would do for us permanently. Even though we die, if our faith is in him, yet shall we live forever. He is the resurrection. You know, I, when, when we listen to that phrase at funerals, I think sometimes we, we just hear it over and over again. It's, it's just like John 3.16 that we don't, Consider the weight of what Jesus is talking about. When he's talking about himself being the resurrection, he's saying, I have defeated death. I have defeated the power of sin. I have defeated the curse. I have defeated the devil. It all tried to destroy me, and yet I I rose again. I triumphed over it. That is what it means when Jesus talks about his resurrection. When he talks about himself being the life, he's saying, I am life. 
Death has no ultimate power over the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus shares this life which triumphed over death and those who believe on him as Lord and Savior. Believers in Christ Jesus will not taste the second death because of the resurrection life of Christ Jesus in you that triumphs over sin, death, and the devil. Hence Jesus says to the persecuted church in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. What is the condition of the life of the church in Smyrna? Is this church healthy? Well, the Jews were slandering this community and saying all kinds of negative things about them. The church would have what they would call love feasts, which was simply a fellowship meal where they would gather together and eat together and pray together and, and, and praise God together. And yet the Jews would say that they were having orgies during these times and, and spelling this out to the community. These Christians, they said, must be cannibalistic because they talk about eating the body and blood of one they call Jesus, which was only that they were spiritually participating in the Lord's Supper. Christians called each other brother and sister, speaking spiritually. So the Jews slandered them for being anti-family. The family structure was important in Roman society. So this did, did not sit well with them as they looked upon the church as a despised subculture. These Jews were driven to do this by their father, the devil. If you want to see a, a reference regarding Jesus' dialogue with Jews of the same nature, you can look at John chapter 8. When you are despised by the culture, it makes life a lot more challenging. How do you respond when an increasing number of people in society see Christian moral values as not only old-fashioned and outdated, but even as extreme or dangerous? There are many in society who have quite a pragmatic view of religion, including Christianity, where the belief is that you should keep your faith to yourself and not impose your values on me in any way. And yet I can impose my values on you. This is largely because individualism has been so fiercely promoted in this nation that people are becoming increasingly isolated and polarized. It's not the law that matters, but my rights. What I think is right that matters. And so I gather my friends together with me and we have a little meeting and as we come to the conclusion that this is actually right, then we're going to impose that upon everybody and try and change the law to accommodate it. This effort keeps putting pressure on the Judeo-Christian principles that undergird the law, which also puts pressure on the church to conform to the values imposed upon it by an increasingly neo-pagan culture. We as a church in the West have not known real persecution. But if society continues to decline, as we see, we will know it. How do we respond? How does a healthy church respond? Jesus tells us to be faithful. We are to be faithful to him, to keep our focus on him. We have to be faithful to his word and to his commission 
to disciple all nations, even in the face of persecution. And that type of persecution that he's talking about here can bring about great poverty. Who wants to go without, right? Materialistically, the church in Smyrna was very poor. They did not have hardly anything. Uh, In the Roman Empire, it didn't matter whether you were wealthy or poor. Citizens of both classes were required by local laws to offer a sacrifice to the emperor on special occasions. If you did not comply, it was almost impossible to participate in the economy of the city's public life. Moreover, you would stand out as a non-participant and be flagged as one who could be persecuted. Jesus says in verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The devil was not only working through the Jews in that synagogue, he was also working through the Gentiles in that city. And Jesus says that they will be tested for 10 days. What does that mean? Well, as the number 1,000 is a metaphor for a vast, prolonged period of time, the number 10 is a metaphor for a short period of time. Compared to the eternal crown of life you will receive from Christ Jesus, your suffering in this life will be very small in comparison. So are you wise standing for Christ even against the world? Is that a wise move, Pastor, to stand against the world and remain faithful to Christ? When you feel like the world is against you and even those around you who call themselves Christians are caving to the pressures of the pagan world, is it wise for you to take a stand for Christ and undergo persecution when others who are compromising their faith are living a much easier life? What is the condition of your life? Are you healthy? Are you rich? Are you wise in the eyes of the Lord? Pastor Stephen Corbet talks about a time when he met one of the poorest, visited one of the poorest churches in Africa. He writes, One Sunday I was walking with a staff member through one of Africa's largest slums, the massive Kibera slum of Nairobi, Kenya. The conditions were simply inhuman. People lived in shacks constructed out of cardboard boxes. Foul smells gushed out of open ditches carrying human and animal excrement. I had a hard time keeping my balance as I continually slipped on oozy brown substances that I hoped were mud but feared were something else. Children picked through the garbage dumps looking for anything spare... uh, looking for anything of value. As we walked deeper and deeper into the slum, my sense of despair increased. This place is completely God-forsaken, I thought to myself. God surely cannot be here. Then to my amazement right there among the dung, I heard the sound of a familiar hymn. There must be Western missionaries conducting an open-air service in here, I thought to myself. 
As we turned the corner, my eyes landed on the shack from which the music bellowed. Every Sunday, 30 slum dwellers crammed into this 10 by 20 foot sanctuary to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church was made out of cardboard boxes that had been opened up and stapled to studs. It wasn't pretty, but it was a church. A church made up of some of the poorest people on the earth. When we arrived at the church, I was immediately asked to preach the the sermon. As a good Presbyterian, I quickly joined, jotted down some notes about the sovereignty of God, and was looking forward to teaching this congregation the historic doctrines of the Reformation. But before the sermon began, the service included a time of sharing and prayer. I listened as some of the poorest people on the planet cried out to God, Jehovah Jireh, please heal my son as he is going blind. Merciful Lord, please protect me when I go home today, for my husband always beats me. Sovereign King, please provide my children with enough food today as they are hungry. As I listened to these people praying to be able to live another day, I thought about my ample salary, my life insurance policy, my health insurance policy, my two cars, my house, etc. I realized that I do not really trust in God's sovereignty on a daily basis as I have sufficient buffers in place to shield me from most economic shocks. I realize that when these folks pray the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Their minds do not wonder as mine so often does. I realize that while I have sufficient education and training to deliver sermons on God's sovereignty with no forewarning, these slum dwellers were trusting in God's sovereignty just to get through the day. And I realize that these people had a far deeper intimacy with God than I probably will ever have in my entire life. Are they healthy? Are they rich? Are they wise? What is the condition of the life of this church? In the eyes of the world, they are extremely poor, but in the eyes of God, they are rich as they take their sufferings and fears to Christ Jesus in faith, pleading for his provision. And the Lord provides for them day by day. We need to remind ourselves that there are Christians all over the world who are suffering for Christ Many are imprisoned for their faith. Many have been martyred for their faith. Not back then, now, today, in our era, in this advanced technological era. Our brothers and sisters are being martyred for their steadfast faith in the Lord. What is the condition of our life in the eyes of Christ? Are we willing to stand for Jesus in the world that stands against him? Are we willing to be faithful to his word and put it into practice, not only within these walls, but outside of these walls? 
Are we willing to suffer for Jesus, knowing that great is our reward in heaven? What is our condition? What is the condition of our life before the eyes of Christ Jesus? As we respond to God's word, please take out your blue hymnals and turn to page number 489.